Hi, this is Chris Madigan, the composer of Cuphead, and you're listening to the Sound Architect Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Sound Architect Podcast. I am your host, Sam Hughes, and I am joined by Chris Madigan, composer of Cuphead. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very well, thank you, and excited to have you on the show. Yes, good to be back. Yeah, so, I mean, before we speak about Cuphead itself, um, it'd be great to talk about how you actually got into music to begin with. Uh, yeah, I was... Um... I took, uh, I studied piano when I was young, not very much though, and really didn't like it. Um, but my mom wanted, really wanted me to study something. So I always wanted to be a rock drummer. That was, oh, nice. I think a lot of, a lot of kids have that, uh, have that kind of, uh, yeah, the old rock, rock star dream. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, my mom compromised and we started taking like classical percussion basically. Mm. And, I mean, I didn't didn't take it that seriously at the time though either because I still wanted to play rock. So this yeah. was like I was I think I got my first drum set when I was thirteen or fourteen. That classic and rock I, age. <laughs> yeah, but I was um, started. I think I started percussion when I was ten. So, but I think I was a terrible student. I was like, I didn't want to learn uh, paradiddles and scales. I wanted to uh, bash out. I wanted to be Billy Joel's drummer, basically. <laughs> the, uh, Amazing. So, uh, which sounds kind of not cool now but at the time it was cool we assure you kids it was very cool at the time <laughs> yeah I, I i recommend everybody check out the concert uh, billy joel live in leningrad it's a great video um i think he might have been one of the first people that played in russia after the wall came down i'm not sure oh wow or the first first western artist um but uh yeah i mean he's kind of i think at his peak at that point and uh his drummer liberty devito just always looked like he was having just a blast so i was uh since i grew up listening to, to billy joel because my mom was a big fan i was like i want to be a rock drummer so so that was kind of where that where that came from and then um you know played a lot of played a lot of rock stuff throughout high school and then after graduation kind of stopped playing for a couple of years just because uh things didn't i just kind of fell out of it i guess i still wanted to play but it just didn't really happen and you know lots of people were like oh you should go to you should go study uh, music in school. And I was kind of like, that's a really dumb idea. <laughs> you know, it didn't seem like a viable career choice at the time. No. And then uh, I just happened to, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm half asleep right now. I'm, I'm giving you a really long answer. But no, no, that's okay. fine. The um, longer the better. <laughs> um, it actually is, uh, and it's kind of a, so much of what happens, so much of what happened with this game, I was thinking about it the other day, like the people that I met and who sort of gave me guidance, it was just like incredibly good good luck, very good fortune a lot of the time. Yeah. And this was, I was, you know, I took a couple of years off, didn't really play any music, and then I was like, oh, I got to go back to school, I got to do something. So I was just taking general classes at university. And I just happened to walk past this one billboard where they were posting stuff, and there was an ad for the university percussion ensemble concert that was coming up, whatever, in like a week or something. Oh, okay. And I was like, oh, you know, I used to do this. It's kind of cool. Maybe I'll go check it out. And I went and saw it. And I don't, I, you know, I didn't, couldn't really tell if it was a good concert or a bad concert, but I was just like, I, you know, that gave me the bug again to be like, okay, I want to, I actually, you know, I'm ready to maybe do this now, I think. So from, you know, that point on, it was just, uh, I went back, started studying percussion in earnest and uh, got you know back into playing and so it's maybe a bit more roundabout path than a lot of people take but i think when i when i really 
started to take it seriously, I was very much ready to do it. So, so it kind of gave me a, a fairly strong work ethic, I think. Yeah, I can imagine. Which, which you know, translated well to what ended up happening, having to happen with with Cuphead, which was basically like starting from scratch and figuring out how to do things. So. Yeah, and speaking of Cuphead, it was your your first and currently only video game title, correct? Uh, yeah, and basically almost the only stuff that I've really written. Period. Oh wow! There's been a couple couple short things, but yeah. So it was a first all round, really. First composition, first video game, first time working with a development team. So it must have been incredible as a debut kind of writing project. Such a unique project itself as well. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it, as uh, Chad from. The studio MDHR is one of the lead developers of Cuphead. You know, as he has said in many interviews, like if any of us had known at the time what a big project it was going to be, none of us would have taken it on. So, you know, when I when I joined um, the development team, or so when I sort of you know started writing music, when they asked me to write music, yeah, it was originally a lot smaller of a game, and it was still like totally intimidating because I had to sort of learn what I was you know learn from scratch. Yeah, and this is you know this is. This is kind of the great thing about indie games in a way. Like Chad and Jared are—I've been best friends with them for twenty-some years now. And uh, oh, wow. you know, the only reason they asked me, as opposed to someone who is actually qualified to do this, is is because they didn't really know anybody else. And also, you know, I was a bit more maybe willing to work on my own, and maybe in a bit more of a pro bono sense. Yeah. Uh, and we'll, we'll figure it out later. You know, like they didn't have, you know tons of incoming cash flow early on in the project so they couldn't necessarily afford to hire an actual composer so so you know it kind of became like a lot of it was a labor of love for the, for the most part and you know which is good in a way yeah i think i mean i think that's fine you don't have to do i think in the arts people do too many things only for money yeah i know what you mean a lot yeah. of the time and and not because they necessarily really are engaged in I mean, a lot of the times people do stuff for money out of necessity and then work for f passion on the stuff they want to do, right? And I, and I think that's fine. I mean, I, I think that's, uh, that's, I mean, to a certain extent, that's what a lot of people do, and I think that's great. But I think as long as you have a passion project that, and you're not just always like, what am I going to get paid for this? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. Which I think, as a, I, I also, you know, there's definitely a lot of people that fall into that category. Well, it's one of those tricky areas, isn't it? Because obviously when you first start out, it mainly is about passion, but then you have to pay the bills and start figuring out what you're actually worth when people do want to hire you, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it, it's, I think now that the, you know, I'm, I feel like, I don't necessarily want to take on other big projects. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would work again for the same, you know, for Chad and Jared because uh, we're buddies. And I think that they wanted me to write something for a different project of theirs i think it would be also like you know we could discuss it without being like okay what's what are the financial repercussions it would be like you know well how can we make this fun and what you know make it worthwhile yeah the finance would come later as a thought rather than like yeah oh. i guess it's this thing i don't have any urge right now to become like a composer for hire in that sense and write for um you know tv or movies or anything not that like that's all you know totally cool but it's just I think I work so slowly that um, any projects I take on are going to have to be uh, somewhat long-term projects that are <laughs> that are enjoyable to work on and maybe like one of the one of the best things about that that period was that it was an opportunity to learn. Yeah, you know, and really study something that I wasn't uh, ultimately familiar with at the time. And I can imagine you had quite a lot of creative freedom with it as well because of that. Um, yes and no. I think like. 
too much creative freedom is bad. Oh, of course, yeah. And if you have no sort of guideline to start, you don't even know, like, what are you going to, if someone just told you to write a piece of music in any style, do whatever you want, like, you you know, it's tough to figure out where to even begin. So at least, at least with Cuphead, there was a certain amount of freedom, but it was also like it had, there was still constraints of like, it has to sound like ragtime or 30s big band. Yeah. So that as at least a starting point, which is nice, um, you kind of, you know, you need certain constraints in order to have ultimate freedom. We've well, got to have some sort of guidelines in there. Yes. Yeah. I think I like, I do think it would actually be very interesting to write for an RPG because I think there would actually be in that particular case, there would be a lot more freedom to uh, experiment with things. Probably because there's also a lot more music as well. <laughs> well, it would be a lot more varied, like, you know, yeah, exactly. Sorry. That's what I mean. Like there's a lot of different uses of music. You know, yeah. Things, yeah. I was, you know, I, I didn't really listen to much uh, video game music while writing Cuphead because I wanted to steer away from that and I wanted to listen to a lot of jazz music but not video game stuff. Yeah. But I did go back and listen to, you know, some of the Final Fantasy music, which is like oh, some of my it's amazing. Yeah, it's it is. Yeah, series for music. So, but you know, if you listen to Final Fantasy like seven, for instance, which I think is a, you know it's a cliche to say that it's maybe one of the best uh, soundtracks. Oh, easy, but it's, yeah. You know, I think I think it is. You know the the amount of different styles that are on there is really it's interesting. There's other you know there's the cinematic kind of game music and then there's samba on there. Yeah. And there's uh, there's a reggae tune on there. I think that's why seven and eight are possibly my favorites, just because the amount of different styles and different approaches Nobuo mm-hmm. Matsu had to write, and it's crazy. Yeah, but I think he had that. You know, there's I mean like I don't think that that is would be something that's considered too much freedom because you're still maybe writing for. A medium. Oh, sure, medium. yeah. You still, need, you still need to think about how's it going to fit into, into gaming. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can, I can imagine it being more freedom, but at the same time, you've still got to write it within that world. Mm-hmm. So even when it has those kind of samba tracks or the kind of poppier tracks, it has to fit with the scene that it's going with. Absolutely. I think his, uh, just as a side, you know, particularly uh, six and seven yeah. of that series are the ones that he really. Those are my two favorite scores, but I think because he had like when you listen to Seven, like there's these, these themes that come back throughout the entire thing. Oh, definitely, yeah. And and Six has all of the like everyone has their own character themes. I think there's maybe less light motives, light motifs, so to speak. But um, you know, there's still like I think what he, he what he did for like that was I think fairly radical for video game music at the time. Like it's a really orchestral classical kind of influence oh yeah definitely i mean uh i mean is that kind of um an operatic approach well i mean yeah i i think i think of wagner in a sense oh right, right. yeah of That's, course yeah yeah so anyway sorry getting a little off, no no it's fine no i always there. get sidetracked talk about final fantasy music <laughs> <laughs> um we can just talk about that for the rest of the podcast yeah let's do it it's just uh, talk about how amazing final fantasy music <laughs> actually apparently like the one of the new ones is supposed to have also like like thirteen maybe has uh, fifteen definitely were... has amazing music. Thirteen was good, okay. but I would say fifteen really upped the bar again. Uh, it's Yoko Shimomura, um, okay, who kind of I, I think Nobuo Uematsu got her the job with Square Enix because she did, she oh, okay, did Kingdom nice. Hearts first, yeah, um, and then she wrote for uh, Final Fantasy fifteen. But she's also done loads of other stuff. Like she was the original Street Fighter two composer. Um, okay, so she's okay. been writing for decades. She's amazing. She's uh, in my top mm-hmm. three composers. So yeah, she's definitely worth listening to. And uh, Final Fantasy Fifteen soundtrack has some amazing tracks on there. The problem with game music is like I, I don't 
I don't want to listen to it first outside of context because I think a lot of it is is context-based and I just don't have time to play many games. Yeah, especially games that big. Well, everyone's freaking out about the the Nier soundtrack. And like, oh, the Nier Automata soundtrack. That's really good. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I checked a bit of it out, but it's tough to get tough to really gauge it outside of you know what it's actually written. Oh for. yeah, like it sounds it sounds great, but like I don't, and I I don't really have time to play a seventy hour RPG, so as much as I would like to, so it, it's it's tough to sort of some of these things are just they end up being tough to check out. Oh yeah, and that's that's the one difficulty I find about video games. Like people who like film soundtracks, it's usually like what two hours, so. You know, it's not the end of the world if you have to watch it to understand the context. With video games, like you say, it could be 100 hours plus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it gets a bit crazy. But anyway, yeah, sorry, going back to Cuphead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's an incredible soundtrack, and it's about three hours long, isn't it? Uh, yeah, pretty close, yeah. Yeah, so what, what was your process like for organizing and planning the music that you wanted to write? Well, I mean, the, the creative process was just trying to come up with ideas and then develop them, and that was just a lot of... You know, I spent a lot, like a lot of time, just listening um, to stuff from that era. And I, I got, you know, I read a lot of composer biographies because there's always you always get little ideas from those kind of things. Yeah, on approaches and things and influences. And you know, score. You know, eventually when I just originally I wasn't going to do the arranging, I was just going to do the writing. And then we sort of had a hard time finding, or I had a hard time finding someone who was interested in taking the project on. Oh, really? So I was like, well, I guess I'll maybe try and learn how to arrange. So I found a really good teacher, fortunately, John Herberman, who is the, uh, he's also the guy, if you watch the, the, the behind the scenes videos uh, from the recording sessions, he's the guy doing the conducting on those. And he was awesome. And he, um, he really got into the project. Oh, cool. Nice. But so I started studying, you know, I started studying arranging with him and I got like a bunch of expensive arranging books and was working on the exercises out of there. And, uh, you know, it was just kind of like one step at a time, figuring things out and the tunes themselves some of them were written uh, specifically for certain bosses or certain areas and others a lot like a lot of them were just like I was just working on ideas because I didn't know you know we didn't know what was happening and I couldn't just sit around waiting for them to like send me you know videos or art so I was I was working on things so some of the tunes specifically you know like the train tune we matched up to the train very early on and then you know made that for that yeah world map world map one was specifically for world map one the last boss stuff specifically with the last boss in mind and then some of them like you know sugarland shimmy and fiery frolic those were just things i was working on and kind of at some point chad would come to me and say okay this is going to work really well for this boss so I guess I'm like scoring a film. Some of it was written with something specific in mind and some of it was not. So it was just like, you know, sort of these baby steps of the entire process and, and matching things up afterwards. And fortunately, like, you know, most of it matched up to whatever bosses we ended up being used for uh, quite well, I think. But that was just, just coincidental, yeah. So when you were writing, I know we spoke briefly before, something I wanted to, to mention again, because I thought it was really fascinating. Um, now, we spoke about how it was mainly writing loops. There was no implementation um, particularly uh, done for an interactive element, was there? But there no. was this interesting idea that you had in terms of soloists on the boss fights, right? Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd love to kind of share with the listeners about that. Well, we uh, there was, you know, I think we didn't want to approach this 
like for a couple of reasons. I think um, we just wanted it to be different, but also logistically, it was it was going to be difficult with a live band like this um, to approach this the way that you would do things like a lot. What what happens in a lot of games, like with MIDI MIDI layering, and you know, as things get more intense, more things will layer on top. Logistically, that just wasn't going to work for what we were doing. So yeah. we kind of just decided, like, well, let's just let's just write, you know, full tunes and we'll just play them. And like, they do the tunes actually. Uh, they should, anyways. I believe like they all have points in them where they repeat seamlessly back earlier in the tune. But pretty well, no one ever gets to that point because you either you either die before the tune plays out because all the tunes are quite long, or you've beaten the boss by that point. Yeah. So the tunes are actually all all the boss tunes are twice as long as they need to be which we sort of realized in hindsight. But uh, during the composition process, it was we were still trying to figure out, like, okay, well, how can we make this still, um, in, you know, interesting and engaging and maybe not as, you know, a little less repetitive sounding, I guess, was the idea. Yeah. And so in, instead of doing whatever typical tricks that game composers use for interactive music, we... Uh, like a, t a, a general approach to a, a jazz tune or a big band tune is you'll have the introduction, then you'll have whatever development of some material, then you'll have solos, and then you'll have, and then it ends. You know, that's a, just a really general sort of thing. Yeah. And um, we recorded most of the solos on separate sessions. So when you play one boss, you might hear uh, a saxophone solo and then a vibraphone solo. And then, you know, if you die and you play it again, you'll hear the same tune. But we we put different solos over top of it, so then you'll hear a piano a piano solo maybe and a trumpet solo instead. And that's really cool. I really like that. Yeah, it worked out really well, and it's a very subtle. You know, not everyone. I think people notice it's something different, but they they don't really necessarily catch on to that. So it's quite subtle, which is also kind of what we were going for. And you know, it gave us gave us good leeway for when we made the soundtrack to sort of pick and choose solos that we thought were like excellent solos but also like a good cross section so everyone is represented yeah um and then but some of those you know i don't remember there's hundreds and hundreds of mixes in the game even though there's only 56 tracks on the album uh because some of the bosses have you know it's the same song it's the same tune right but some of the bosses have five or six different mixes with different solos in them so you know there's there's a lot there that it's just kind of like subtle trying to keep things from getting boring and repetitive in a sense yeah but it's a nice subtle touch because it's not too in your face but it's not going to be too boring at the same time and it, i think it's a nice blend and it's an interesting technique that i don't think is used a lot yeah i don't really know if, if that's been used at all like i think you know i all yeah, I, during the process of writing i was also reading some some of the you know the game music literature and i read uh Winifred Phillips book which is great and uh a few others um that i don't quite remember but uh there was some good insight in a lot of them, but I think we were just approaching this like radically differently across the board uh, than a lot of people would for games. And I think I think because we had the luxury of they decided early on that they were going to hire a full band of real musicians, so it didn't make sense to try and approach writing the music the same way that people who were writing for uh, MIDI they had the flexibility of having uh, MIDI layering. Yeah. Layering. You know, it doesn't make sense to try and write music in the same style. And also for me, I wanted to write, I was, you know, very concerned that the soundtrack came across like it was done with 
care and with love uh, for the source material. And I didn't want anything to seem cheap. I didn't want anything to seem like, you know, a parody of jazz. Like, yeah. it's, not, it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be it's like... It's a homage, isn't it? It's an homage. And, um, you know, we kind of knew that there was the potential that there was going to be a good cross-section of people who were not familiar with jazz or thought it was, you know, like kind of like lame grandpa music, you know, <laughs> and who might who might be experiencing this for the first time. So we wanted them to have a good a good experience with that. Yeah. So so it was it was important that the music seemed like it was taken very seriously in the writing phase, which is I guess why I wanted to write tunes which are the proper length, you know, like tunes that which develop organically and don't feel rushed to get to the end yeah even if you're never going to hear the second half of the tune and the thing is pretty well all of the big band tunes in the game you can't even hear the ends at all it, it will if you get to the end of the tune it will loop back before you hear the actual end of the song well yeah you won't hear the ending i suppose will you no because it, it, if you beat it then it just goes straight to the, the you win music yeah but um which is why it was very important to me for you know, if you buy the soundtrack, I, I wanted it to be like a standalone album in a sense. Like it's it works for, it works in the game hopefully, but also you can sit down and put it on and it, it plays like an actual album of big band music. You know, like the songs are complete songs. They have yeah. beginnings and development sections, which are the proper length, and then they actually end. So, you know, I think people, I get the impression that people are, have appreciated the extra mile I think, that we went because we didn't need to like, write endings for every tune we could just fade it out yeah but you know why write 95 percent of the song and then well yeah it seems silly not to finish it doesn't it yeah so i think i guess yeah sorry going back to the original point like definitely the uh the approach of this is i think quite different than the majority of, of game soundtracks that are out there yeah which is quite cool and it's very appropriate really because cuphead itself is quite unique compared to almost every other video game out there anyway Mm -hmm. So it kind of suits that it has its own unique approach in the music as well. And it's it's nice that you had something in there for repetition, because as most players out there will know, it's one of the most notoriously difficult <laughs> games out there. At yeah. the moment. So obviously you need some sort of variation when people are replaying levels and replaying bosses, especially a lot. I mean, ideally, yeah, that was, uh, and even within the tunes, I tried to make the tunes themselves not, they had to sound like, you know, kind of standard big band tunes, yeah. in a sense, but I didn't just want this, this same riff, like just, over and over and over and over, you know, like keep keep it interesting as the tune progresses as well. Well, it's also a, a kind of genre of music that most people don't hear very often anyway, unless they're specifically into it. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I like electro swing, I like all the big time band stuff, but commercially, I was thinking I was listening to the soundtrack, and the last time I could really think of it being used in a commercial sense was uh, back in the, in the 90s with a film called The Mask. Yeah, yeah. And and that was kind of the last time I remember a soundtrack sort of having that vibe. I mean, I may have missed a lot of other films in between, but that's the kind of same feel that I got. I mean, that was, that was yeah, in terms of like hit films, that yeah. would have been something that people would have. And I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen that. I also don't know, that's, you know, kind of a madcap comedy as well. Yeah, like, exactly, I don't yeah. know if that's the music and I think that I, I feel that they probably were like fairly conscious of, of keeping it respectful in there, but I don't possibly not as much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it still might be a little like bordering on parody, maybe in a sense. Mm. I don't know. I, I haven't seen the, you know, yeah, it's been a long time. Not, I remember watching not it. High, it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not in any, any rush to see it again. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, 
Um, but yeah, I was also quite Im impressed by um, by Studio MDHR's approach then, because it's quite a strong statement to make early on that you want to record with real musicians um, and take the music seriously. Like especially indie games, a lot of indie games will just be kind of like, oh yeah, we need some need some music, I guess. Well, I think they knew that they were going. They decided extremely early on that they were going to be hand drawing everything in that style, and. You know, we tried to figure out ways, at least initially, to like, what, how can we reduce costs? What can we make them smaller, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. And then I think when, you know, they got a bit more buzz and they were just like, you know, we can't really afford, we're not cheaping out on the animation. So we're not going to, why cheap out on the music? Well, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they took a big risk, but. Oh, yeah. Well, there's, there's plenty of stories of the risks they, uh, they took to make the game, isn't there? Pretty sure mm -hmm. the word remortgage was used. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when they, you know, they didn't remortgage their houses until the risk factor was maybe they were a bit more confident in their product. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I can imagine. Still, yeah, it's still a ballsy move, though. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just want to kind of go back earlier. You were saying um, that you're you're primarily a percussion a percussionist and a drummer, right? Mm -hmm. So does that influence you in the way that you compose because I, I know for a fact that i i play guitar so that definitely influences the way i write music um uh, yeah probably i mean I, I don't know that much about you know i think when you're drummer or percussionist you know you're for me anyways like some of the things which are lacking like you know my theory is not or it wasn't i'm getting it a lot better at the theoretical aspect of music but like music theory is not something that i have deal with on a regular basis yeah you know like you know piano players and string players like they're very good at understanding harmony particularly jazz player like you know you need if you're a jazz musician playing a, a melodic instrument you need to understand harmonic movement yeah definitely and you know when i was in school like i thought it would get 50 percent in all of my harmony classes because it was i was getting mercy passed basically <laughs> because like this it was difficult for me because it wasn't something that as a drummer, I have to deal with like that much. I deal with rhythm and other things. So, I mean, yeah, it was, it affected me that way and that I had to like go back to rudimentary theory and kind of, you know, relearn some things. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think I had strong opinions about how I wanted the drums to sound, I guess, on a lot of this. And, and, you know, a lot of the, uh, I knew I wanted like a strong Gene Krupa kind of vibe on a lot of the tunes. Nice. Yeah. And there's a bit of percussion on some of the tracks that's I knew you know I knew what I wanted but uh I think yeah I mean I think I just maybe had a, a bit more clear idea of the rhythmic drive that I, the music needed to have but I don't know if it it affected uh I was trying to not approach writing this like a drummer writing music I was trying to like yeah come at it as from a composition sense so they're saying that in this style like the drummer has a surprisingly important role I mean as they do in most music but in this genre especially I know that I I definitely pay attention to the drums specifically in jazz yeah definitely yeah and you know the drummers from that era like again like you know gene krupa was a huge uh obviously a, a huge influence on the soundtrack because there's a bunch of bunch of sections where i just you know told ted the drummer like yeah you, you know play like krupa here because that's the sound we want and he was you know uh, he was a very visible drummer uh for a number of reasons but he kind of was you know matinee idol looks and uh uh, in, a, in a very popular band and so he was you know he he was one of the guys who's credited with bringing drums to like a more visual forefront i think 
in in big band music. So thing is that how many how many big band intros start off with a drum kind of solo to kick it off? I mean, you know, it's quite common, right? Yeah, yeah, quite a few, and he contributed to that for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, definitely. Yeah. So um, I'm just kind of uh, curious as well. Then, did you perform on a lot of your own tracks, if not all, or? Uh, I did the drums on the ragtime music, right? Uh, in the ragtime band stuff, like the world maps and other such things. Did not play on the big band tunes because I did not want. I wanted to hire an actual killer big band drummer to do that, and I didn't yeah. feel comfortable doing that myself. Uh, but I played, you know, I played all of the written out vibraphone stuff, but I didn't play the vibe solos because I also don't do that. Right. Um, and I played the, you know, the xylophone and. All of the percussion except the Brazilian percussion, which I I left that to an actual Brazilian percussion specialist. Yeah. So I'm you know I'm I'm here and there on the soundtrack. I played a little bit of piano, like uh, Inkwell Hell, the piano version. I played piano on that. Nice. So so there's a bit of I'm here and there on the soundtrack, but awesome. We'll have to keep an keep an ear out for where we can spot you. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I knew like for the the ragtime stuff, like I had studied ragtime drumming for different projects um, maybe like five or six years ago. Right. So I was pretty familiar with, because that's kind of a weird style. Like it, it, a lot of the stuff in that era didn't record very well. Um, so you can't really hear what the drummer is doing in a lot of cases. So it, you're kind of left to sort of piece ragtime drumming together uh, based on other, you know, written examples and, and less from recordings, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I get what you mean. So, so I kind of went into the those ragtime sessions with a pretty strong idea of what I think that drumming historically would sound like. Okay. So, so I, I hope that it's uh, correct. But well, from what I've heard, it sounds pretty good. So <laughs> it was easier for me to play that than to try and tell somebody else like this is what I this is kind of what I want. Yeah. So whereas the big band stuff, it was very easy to tell with a proper big band drummer like just do this. So do your, you know do, basically do your thing. Yeah, and I was just curious, like, when do you draw the line? So obviously, as a musician and composer, with things like budget to consider as well, where do you go, mm-hmm. right, I'm not good enough that I'm confident doing this part on there. I'm going to hire someone else to do it properly. Uh, well, I mean, I know where the line is, so I don't want to look stupid. Yeah, that's a good that's a good thing to bear in mind. <laughs> I mean, the, the reason that I did a lot of the... Uh some of that stuff was just because it was it was cheaper for me to just go into the studio and do it than to try and get the sound I wanted from somebody else. But that was that was not many cases because, you know, you hire the reason that you hire certain players is because you know what they're gonna bring to the project. Oh yeah, sure. So I you know, for the actual big band sessions, I didn't really have to tell them much of anything other than, you know, what was on the page. Mm. Because we hired them to like themselves and to bring their knowledge to that kind of thing right so yeah yeah of course and if there there was certainly some things i think there was one tune that i i maybe tried to do on piano and i was like no this is not working so i think we got i don't remember the specifics of that it might have been something that didn't end up on the soundtrack either but uh it wasn't working so we got somebody else to play it right and you know that's fine yeah well sometimes that must be a necessary component of the, the writing process yeah i mean i don't I'm also not really a piano player, so an actual piano player is going to be able to do it better than me. But, but I was able to play, you know, uh, Inkwell Hell, uh, the piano version. Nice. And, nice. and it, was, it was just, I was in the studio, so I was like, let's just do it now. And it was just, you know, quicker and in that case, cheaper. 
So do you have a, a favorite piece on the soundtrack? Yeah, I like Pyramid Carol as my favorite piece. I have a number of uh, I have a number that I like a lot, but that one is my favorite. Oh, okay, I was going to say, like, I mean, it's, you've obviously been asked that question quite a lot because you had that ready to go. <laughs> or did you just instantly fall in love with it? No, that was one that it was, um, other than the ending, which took me a while to figure out, that one came out quite quickly. I knew that I wanted to write another quote-unquote Latin-esque kind of tune um, because I'd written the tune that became the, the B level. Right. Um, that was kind of based on based loosely on Caravan by Ellington. And I wanted to write, and that was really early in the process. And then when I wrote Pyramid Peril, that was pretty late in the process. And that was just before Floral Fury as well, which is the Brazilian tune. Yeah. So so there was a big stretch where I hadn't written anything in that style. And I mean, I mean in the 30s, Cuban music was becoming kind of an influence um, on a lot of the, the big band jazz scene. Yeah. But it was always like kind of, I don't want to say it was superficial, but like, a lot of um, big band composers, jazz composers, were adding sort of Cuban instruments and Cuban rhythms, but it wasn't really like super authentic necessarily, right. which is totally cool. But but I kind of you know that's a style, that's a thing that existed at that time. So I wanted, I was like, I kind of want to write another tune in that style. Yeah. And so I you know went back and listened to a bunch of other um, ideas like that from that era, and Pyramid Peril just came out. It flowed out pretty easily. Um, it's less, you know, in a lot of ways, it's sufficiently less derivative than some of the other tunes. So I think, okay. it, like, I like it because it has the most amount of, of me in it, arguably. And I like a lot of the chords. Like, there's there's some really funky, uh, uh, you know, some incorrect thirds that are in there, which are, like, they are correct, but they sound really dissonant. Right, okay. And, which is, like, a very Duke Ellington uh, kind of concept. So, I mean, I like the fact that there's some ex pretty extreme dissonant sounds in there, um, which are exactly what I wanted, you know? Yeah. Intentional dissonance is quite interesting technique. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, so that, I mean, that one, it was just like, it was sort of a culmination of like, I could tell that I had learned a lot and I was just really happy with how it turned out. So, so, I mean, I like that too. And I think that it builds really well too. Like it's, it's got like a really interesting form and it kind of just gets more and more intense and it's kind of like screaming, you know, weird chords. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah, definitely an interesting track then. Yeah. I don't think it's, it's definitely not one of the fan favorites, but. But it's a personal favorite. <laughs> the personal favorite. So what would you say was the most challenging part of the project then? I think just coming up with ideas. Yeah. That were stylistically appropriate, but not didn't necessarily sound so similar to like, you know, other tunes. Yeah. One of the, the thing I sort of learned from this project is how difficult it was to write in a very established style without, I don't want to say without like plagiarizing, but without, you know, if you're writing in ragtime music, you're, you have to use a bunch of ragtime conventions. Right. Okay. Um, in, in order for it to sound like ragtime music, if you don't use those, it doesn't sound like ragtime. The right. thing is, you didn't you didn't come up with those in the first place, so you have to figure out what to do with these things, which clearly define the style that you didn't write yourself, and how can you take the essence of those and change them enough so that it doesn't sound like you're just you know stealing ideas. If that makes sense. Oh yeah, it must be really tricky actually. 
yeah, it was, it was hard. That was, I mean, it was challenging, yeah. And there's this goddamn thing from uh, Super Mario World that people keep bringing up. <laughs> you know the part I'm talking about. I think so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, everyone's like, oh, this is, well, he totally uh, stole this from Super Mario World. And it's just like, it, it sounds, it's pretty similar, but it's not quite. But it's, you know, it's a, it's a secondary ragtime rhythm played over a series of secondary dominants. Right. Um, it's a very standard ragtime cliche. When, when, you know, when Koji Kondo wrote it, it was already like, whatever, 80 years old or something. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and you know, it, like that's kind of like, you know, people have found an 11 second clip in an almost three hour soundtrack to be like, oh, this is, this is totally ripped off. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> I guess, I mean, that's, I think, I think maybe more what I'm saying is like, if, if that's the best that people can find, to say like this sounds really derivative of something it's like a really short clip then hopefully i did a pretty good job of like taking the influences and making them my own you know well yeah to be honest if you wrote in a style from god knows how long ago and were referenced to a video game from 30 years ago you're still doing a lot better than a lot of other music <laughs> that comes out now which is yeah. basically being compared to music that came out last year and sounds very similar <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah i mean i don't want to get it like you know i don't want to be like harsh on any sort of i think i think it's just you know it's 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 almost impossible now to write anything in any style, not even music, probably like anything, make, you know, make an original film. Like it, you're going to, the influences are always going to show. Like it's, it's incredibly difficult. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, what can you do to take these things and, and make them your own? It doesn't mean they have to be super original, but you know, it's yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. That, I know what you're that saying, was, yeah. that, that was one of, I would argue that that was like one of the big challenges was to just find, find the influences and then discard the obvious influences yeah. and take the essence from those ideas and transmute them enough so that what I was doing with them sounded familiar, but not like directly taken from something. Yeah. I know what you mean. On the flip side then, would you say there was anything that was your proudest moment writing the music for Cuphead? Uh, I don't know. Finishing it. <laughs> I mean that's something very very good to be proud of. Yeah, finishing it is a is a good goal. You know, there was a, a, definitely a lot of tunes on there that were like you know the frogs tune that was ninety five percent done for a couple of years. Oh wow! And it was never quite finished. And there was a whole bunch of it, like uh, uh, the blimp threatening Zeppelin, like that was pretty well done. Yeah. But until that, we had ever like there was not a single tune that was actually one hundred percent finished when we booked the first recording session, which was like it you know. It's hard to get three days in this particular studio in a row. Yeah. Um, so we booked it when we could. It was very expensive. And that was the point where it's like, okay, I actually got to like, you know, like if you don't have a firm deadline, you just keep going back and like fiddling with things and tweaking things. Yeah. And you're not necessarily making them any better. But it was until that we had an actual, okay, like literally these charts need to be done by this date. That's when you actually like finish things. Yeah, yeah, of course. Especially as a creative, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite, and I, you know, it's one thing if you feel rushed. It's another thing if you're just like twiddling your thumbs and like moving single notes around every couple of weeks. Yeah. So, in this particular case, having once we started getting firm deadlines, it was, I the process got really interesting because it was like some things were not even close to being finished, and it's like we got to finish these, but some things which had been finished for a couple of years but not quite finished. Yeah. It's like okay. 
also have to finish these. So, I mean, I think proudest moment might have been, I think maybe the first rehearsal that we had. That must have been pretty epic. Well, I was, I don't think the players knew exactly what they were getting into. Because <laughs> the, the charts are very difficult and they're very fast. Yeah. And uh, I think they kind of thought maybe they were just hired for like a standard big band gig. And uh, so they were kind of, you know, they were like, oh, these are, these are uh, fast tunes. But I think hearing them for the first time uh, at the rehearsal, you know, I was like, yeah, these are kind of like I was just freaking out for a long time. Like, oh, the charts are, they, maybe the transpositions didn't work when I printed them out or, uh, you know, none of it, like these are all going to sound terrible. And, you know, at that first rehearsal, working through them, it was like, that was kind of when I realized that everything was actually probably going to work out. Yeah. So it was, that was a good, it was a good feeling. I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, especially with it being, as you say, your first writing gig, it's definitely the first moment you've obviously come up with that, you know, come against the fact that you've gone into a studio and everyone's suddenly about to play what you've written down. Yeah. And like, if it's, if something is, is not right, it's a major issue. Oh yeah. It's very, it's very expensive. If you're in the, if you're in the studio pissing around trying to like, Makes mistakes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or if something is just not even, if it's just not going to work, like that's, you know, very problematic. So, you know, we, we did as much pre-preparation as we could to show up as prepared as possible for the rehearsal, uh, for the studio dates, at least on, you know, on my end and, um, the, you know, the pre-production side of things. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. I, so, which is, you know, uh, that's very important, I think. Well, yeah. And so coming from that angle then, what advice would you give anyone who's just been roped into composing or just started composing and finally gets to record in a studio? I, I assume you just say, like, make sure you're bloody prepared. Yeah. I mean, that's a bit simple in a sense, but uh, I, yeah, I've i done enough. Um, not I've done some, you know, sessions, a bit of studio work. Uh, but also I've done a lot of, you know, freelance orchestra work uh, or, even you know, like any sort of any sort of uh, jazz band gig where you're reading charts. Like the amount of times that I have showed up and been given a super easy chart, but it's so poorly written on the page and it's not formatted right. And there's no bar numbers and like you can't count anything. And it's just like slash. There's just repeat marks. Right. Yeah. And you don't have any idea where you are in the tune. It's it's stunning to me because that that to me is like as a performer like rule number one is make the music as easy to read as possible. It's, well, that's the idea, right? It's hard enough as it is. Yeah. So you're right. Showing up bloody prepared is extremely <laughs> important. But part of that is you have to make if you want your music to sound good, which I'm assuming you do, you have to actually make it. Um, if you're not going to make it easy in a playable sense. Uh, which a lot of the cuphead stuff was, was not easy, and some of it was like almost not playable because I don't really know how to write for a lot of those instruments. Yeah. But like you have, you know, you have to put eight bars on a line and not squish it together, or you know, four bars, like you know, even numbers of things. You have to have bar numbers if you're going to, if you're going to give the drummer like four pages of 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 just repeat signs, you have to give them bar numbers and indicators to know where the sections are because you're just, oh, yeah, you're just looking at a page, your eyes just go bugging, right? And like, the, it's super obvious, but the amount of times that I've been in, in performance situations where I just, you know, you just get lost because you can't follow what's going on on the page is, is remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, it takes time to, to 
prepare and format charts that way, but you, if you care at all about your own music, you have to do that. So that's, I mean, that's aside from showing, that's part of the preparation, I think, is yeah. proper, uh, it's called engraving, I think. Um, it's not really engraving anymore, it's just printing the chart. <laughs> but proper proper engraving of the uh, of the tunes. And there are some, I think there are actually some, some good books about that particular process, but but yeah, I mean, you know, look at look at some professional professionally written music, and it, in theory, it should be easy to follow and sectionalized, and uh, you know, hard to get lost. Yeah, and I think that's all very, very sound and good advice. To be honest, I mean, it's one of those simple things that everyone's like, oh yeah, 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 but then surprisingly, people still don't do it. So, it's it's very good to reiterate the point. <laughs> it's a it's just a, that's just a practical. That's a not not a glamorous part of the process, but or it's like if you if you wrote like a novel and you're you know every word is like a different font and like it's kind of like the lines aren't straight. Yeah. Like you know unless you're Mark Danielewski or someone who writes like that for a reason. Like if you're just writing like a normal book, like you would never write like you would format something like that because people can't even read it. Well, yeah, exactly. So I mean, it's the same idea. You have to do that in in for writing. You're writing your charts, writing your. If you want people, if they're going to be played by real people, then yeah. If they're just going to be like input into MIDI, then that's different. Oh yeah, of course, because then the computer is just going to take it at face value. So. Mm -hmm. So obviously the soundtrack was completed quite a while ago now, I guess last year, or maybe was it even finished before then? Or. Well, uh, our first recording session was almost two years ago now. Wow. Yeah. So I think it was March 2016, and then we finished. Was the I mean. Yeah, like the the last the last major recording session for the big band was in June of that year, I think June or July. Yeah, yeah. So it's been nearly. And two then years. there was, and then there was like you know the better part of a year of mixing, but also like you know recording small things like bringing in the uh, piccolo player to play on the ragtime stuff. Uh, yeah, I was doing the, you know, I the last thing that got recorded period was Inkwell held piano, which I, as I said I played. Yeah. Um, and that was maybe like three months before the game came out. So that was that was pretty late in the process. So I mean the whole the whole thing took start to finish the recording process took recording and mixing took about a year and a half. But we weren't we weren't I mean also like we started recording in March that of that year because that was you know that E three trailer was like it's coming out in twenty sixteen. So Chad was like the latest we can have the music is is by May of that year in order to implement it. And then the game got pushed back by a year. So we were kinda like <laughs> So I you know it was a little maybe slightly annoying to be like, oh, we rushed to finish all of these tunes and now we don't need them right away. But it was also very liberating to be done. And it was, again, having that deadline, like the, the tunes wouldn't have been any better if I had had that extra six months or a year to actually work on yeah. them. Yeah, and there's always the potential that it could have gone worse, right? That's exactly what happens, I think. I think some of those tunes that I just fiddled with, like I don't know if they got worse, but I don't think they, they're, they're maybe a little different, but they're certainly not radically better than they were it's just like you're just yeah. moving like small things around yeah that makes sense so what have you been up to since then in the last kind of year and a bit lots of uh i mean i'm doing lots of independent study on my own okay going back to the theory you know and working on that um trying to get a handle on that kind of thing just lots of i mean lots of playing lots of freelancing that's my main uh main thing so yeah of course tons of podcasts uh <laughs> Lots of people want to talk, so it's it's nice, and uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely keeping busy. So yeah, you haven't been inspired to become a full time 
composer then? Nope. I have no urge to, uh, <laughs> nope. nope. I would, I mean, it's going to have to be the right project, uh, that someone approached yeah. me with, but also, you know, I like, I don't, I don't have the time really to devote to doing that as a regular gig. Yeah. You know, like, like I said, like if Chad and Jared wanted me to write something else for them, I'd be glad to do that because I know that they're also not fast workers in a good sense. Like, but it's especially if, especially if, it, yeah, they'll dedicate if a they did a sequel to, to this game. Um, oh yeah. You know, it would, they're going to be tied up in animation for a little while anyway. So that, you know, that would be fine. I have no urge to do like a weekly, you know, the way that those, those folks write for TV. Like, I don't know how they write that much. Oh yeah. I don't know how they bash it out so quickly as well. But that's also more or less what they do. Like I, you know, it's, I'm doing enough playing on my own that it's, I don't really have the yeah. time to uh, even like, I look back now and I don't know how, how I spent five hours a day writing and writing and listening and studying to do Cuphead, how I squeezed it in with the, the my other schedule. So it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like when I think back was when I was in school too. It's like, I don't know, I was practicing like eight or 10 hours a day for like three years, four years. And I was like, how did, wow. how did I do that? I can't do that anymore. But when you're in, when you're in school, that's all you're kind of doing. Well, yeah, true. Yeah. In a lot of cases, I mean, you maybe have to go to work sometimes. But when you're not working, you're you're working at school. So I, I have no urge to do that anymore. <laughs> so what lies in the future for you now? Then I assume lots of playing. Uh, well, breakfast is in in, in the near okay, future. Okay, that's always good. Yeah, yeah, it's a good um, start. Yeah, I don't think there's anything. What's coming up? I'm, I'm, I'm speaking, I'm doing a, a, a panel thing, I think, at PAX East. Oh, nice. In Boston, uh, beginning of April. Uh, yeah, that'll be fun. Very cool. And there might be a, a speaking, like a little lecture somewhere in the States uh, later in April, also on Cuphead. So there's been some Cuphead. Uh, we're going to go out to Vancouver for the Juno Awards because Cuphead got nominated for a Juno. Uh, for best instrumental uh, music. Congratulations! So thank you. That's uh, that's new since the last time we we chatted. Um, so we're going. That'll be as March twenty fourth. Awesome. It's like three days out there. So I mean, kind of uh, kind of funny to go out and do that. I think. And no plans for the UK at all at the moment. Not at the moment. No. If, if someone invites me, then maybe. But uh, I'm just I'm just going where I'm invited right now. I'm not <laughs> yeah. No, I can imagine. So. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, like the next few months too, are also very busy, uh, with freelancing, um, and got engaged on new year's. So we're getting married in May. So we're also very busy. Oh, wow. Congratulations. That's doing amazing. That. Thank you. But so, I mean, you know, the next, the next four months are going to be like, <laughs> they're going to be mental. <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Which is good. Yeah. But so I do. So the last time we chatted for those, that, I don't want to like, you know, we chatted like whatever, like a month ago. Yeah, and there's some something screwed up technically with the. Uh... Yeah, yeah. So we lost we lost the recording basically. So this is all completely re-recording it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just for anyone listening. Like literally later that afternoon after we'd hung up from the failed podcast, we're like, "Well, we'll do this next month." I was watching a, a Leonard Cohen uh, "Bird on a Wire" documentary. All right. Yeah. And I was already like 15 minutes into it, and. Uh, so I just put it back on and within like five minutes, this is within the first like 20 minutes of the film, I think within five minutes, there's a, uh, there was a clip of Leonard Cohen was doing an interview with somebody in, I want to say France, maybe 
it was, it was like his European and Israeli tour from like some sometime in the early 70s. And so the guy has his tape recorder out and he's interviewing Leonard Cohen. And, and like the documentary, you know, was kind of just watching this happen. And then, uh, so the, the, the interviewer is like, okay, thanks Mr. Cohen for the interviewer. Do you want to, do you want to listen back to any of this? And Leonard Cohen is, is typical Leonard Cohen. He's like, no, no, I don't really want to check any of this out. <laughs> and then the interviewer is like, no, no, like, check this out. Let's have a listen. And then he starts playing back the tape. And then, and then he, like, he's not, he's getting like some other sort of interview on there. And then Leonard Cohen's like, what did, did, uh, don't tell me it didn't record. And the guy's like, no, no, it's definitely on here. It's definitely on here. <laughs> and then a few seconds later, he like looks up and he's like, it didn't record. Oh no. <laughs> what coincidence as well. Well, yeah, no, this was like literally like minutes after we finished our podcast. So I was like, okay, this definitely happened for a reason. So I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to share that anecdote because I thought it was, uh, this interview is clearly way better than the last one we did. Obviously, it was obviously meant to be. Obviously, because of that, yeah, I think so. That's crazy, though. That's a really cool coincidence, in a way, you know. Yeah, it was. It was. I kind of just laughed, and I was like, ah. <laughs> this means we're going to have a much better interview next time. Obviously, that's obviously what it meant. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm uh, hopefully this one. I'm recording my end on this one, so. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. We've got all all yeah. bases covered this time. All so. all covered. Yeah. <laughs> Although, if if your end is not recorded, you'll have to. Uh, You'll have to figure out what questions you asked and interject them on tomorrow. Oh, well, my end is definitely recorded because it's not only okay. using the Skype recorder, it's using Reaper as well. So oh, good, good. It's definitely recording. <laughs> <laughs> I can see the wave file creating. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So I have, I have one final question to finish off with then. It's a bit of a fun one. If you could hang out with anyone, alive or dead, who would it be? Mm. Possibly the hardest question I ask everyone. You know, I, I know the answer to this, but I, I, I'm drawing a blank. I, I do actually have someone, I can't think of it. I mean, I think Beethoven would be interesting. Oh yeah, that'd be great. He, would, he wouldn't want to hang out with me, but... Uh, <laughs> um, Depends on the context, I guess. You yeah. Know, traveler from the future, I'm sure he'd be interested. <laughs> well, maybe. And I, well, I mean, I, if we're doing it in, in that specific way, then uh, yeah, he might be interested in that. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, the the person who I often think about is on the tip of my tongue, but I can't uh, I can't remember it right now. I mean, maybe you know, also maybe Duke Ellington would be interesting to hang out oh, with yeah. or somebody from that from that era, at least now, anyways. But uh, yeah, probably I mean, probably Beethoven. Awesome, good choice. Anyone from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, actually. <laughs> yeah. So crates. What what an awesome yeah. film. <laughs> I, I'll when I think of the actual answer, I'll email you. <laughs> yeah, I'll put it in the in the subtext below. But like, this is Chris's actual person that he'd rather hang out with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, well, I mean, that's that's me out of questions, Chris. And I have to say, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure having you having you on the podcast. It's been amazing speaking with you. No, thanks. It's uh, always a pleasure. And uh, you know, wish you all the best with your your new adventures of marriage, as well as all the award nominations that you've received from Cuphead. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, and thanks again for joining us, and hopefully we'll catch you again soon. Sounds good. Cheerio. Take care. Bye-bye.